0: Today, uh, we are going to uh, wrap up our consideration of the millennium, and, and uh, so far our, our uh, study has been a historical study looking at different views, millennial views throughout the history of the church, beginning with uh, the early church fathers, and uh, we wrapped it up, um, sort of we're forced to conclude our study since we're running out of time, new series starting next week, Uh, with uh, views amongst the uh, English Puritans. Um, But today, I thought it would be helpful, since questions have arisen concerning the interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, that I would try in 30 minutes or less to explain to you what Revelation 20 means. Uh, So, the book of Revelation has often been called, and it's it's been referred to by scholars as apocalyptic literature. Uh, Coming from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation or unveiling, which is actually the very first word of the book of Revelation. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, But uh, scholars have recognized that there is actually a whole genre of literature, um, going back to the Old Testament and in the intertestamental times, of what we might call apocalyptic literature. Literature that is filled with um, sort of vivid uh, imagery and, um, and using vivid imagery to describe heavenly realities or future events, okay? So, Revelation is often lumped together with this apocalyptic literature genre, which I, I don't have a problem with, but if you ask the Apostle John, what, what did you write, uh, the last book of the Bible, what, what, how would you describe it? He would call it a book of prophecy. He says, actually, blesses the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And I think that's perhaps a, a more helpful way of approaching the book of Revelation is to understand it as a book of prophecy. Because we already have books of prophecy in the Bible right? that we can look to and understand and, and, and recognizing how it is that God communicated to the prophets, um, he, he used a particular method. And more often than not, when God spoke to the prophets, he would do it in visions or dreams. So visions and dreams. I don't know if anyone's had a vision, um, but you've probably, you probably had a dream, right? Not a revelatory dream, such as, uh, as we read of in the Bible, but you know what it's like to dream, right? You're in your house, but it's not your house, and you're talking to someone, and then there's someone else, right? You don't take your dreams literally, in other words, nor, uh, nor should we understand, uh, or, or when we look at the way in which God uh, has given visions, right, uh, to the prophets, we see that they're rich in imagery and symbolism, okay? So think about the vision that Peter had in the rooftop at Joppa, right? A blanket coming down, what's on it? Well, all sorts of non-kosher food, uh, animals, right? Um, there's lobster, there's pig, right? There's... There's lizards. There's all this stuff. And what does Jesus say? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, should we take that vision in an overly literal sense, as if to understand Jesus only communicating to Peter that he can expand his palate, uh, that he can have surf and turf, right? Um, Is that it? Well, no. Peter makes it very clear when he goes to Cornelius' house that he has learned Not to call any man common, and that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He understood a greater significance to the vision he had of animals on a blanket. Okay, pigs in a blanket. Um, So, uh, when we turn to the book of Revelation and understand it as a series of visions that John received, we need to understand that these visions are rich in imagery and symbolism, which point beyond the literal sense of the term. Okay? So we have colors, we have actions, we have animals, we have parts of nature, and yes, we have numbers. There's a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation. And we need to, uh, it, we need to understand that these numbers um, have a significance beyond just their literal sense. So what I'm suggesting to you is that the interpretive method to come to the book of Revelation and say, I'm going to read this as literally as possible, or literal um, in, um, in every circumstance, unless I'm forced to take it in, a, in an allegorical or symbolic understanding, is, it, it, you're, that's a misguided understanding. You should come to the book of Revelation assuming that everything has something, a significance even beyond its literal sense, including, yes, the number 1,000. John signals this early on when he says uh, to the seven churches that are in Asia, why seven, why not eight, why not six? Well, seven's an important number, right? It's the number of fullness and completion. And then when he gives this, uh, one of my favorite Trinitarian blessings, um, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, literally the coming one, um, and from the seven spirits who were before his Rome. if we have the, the understanding we need to take every number literally in Revelation, then John just committed heresy. He said that there's seven Holy Spirits. There's not seven Holy Spirits. There's only one, right? But seven being the number of fullness and completion, okay? So um, uh, when, when, we, when we have this question about, you know, the significance of this number that we encounter in Revelation chapter 20... Um, um, Right? We shouldn't shouldn't have this assumption that, well, we need to take that literally. The assumption should be there's some sort of significance to this beyond just a literal number. And we've already actually... What's interesting, what's fascinating, is the only other time that this term, 1,000 years, is used in the New Testament, it's not used in a literal sense. You guys know the only other place in the New Testament where we read of a 1,000-year period? What's that, Spencer? That's right. Yeah, it's, it's 2 Peter 3, 8, right? Where Peter is reflecting upon the words of Psalm 90, which we sing today, right? Where, uh, you know, 1,000 years is as a day to the Lord, Right? And Peter, in talking about the the scoffers who say, where's the promise of his coming? Jesus is delaying his coming. He must not be coming, right? Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, this passage has been tortured throughout the history of the church where people say, okay, all right, well, let's do the mathematical calculations and figure out how old the earth is and how old, you know, when, when Jesus is coming back. No, no, no. What Peter's point is, is don't, it's, it's very simple, don't miss it. It's that, you know, with God, God's timeline isn't the same as our timeline, right? You know, so for 2,000 years, we think, well, that's been a long time. And God says, no, it hasn't, right? So what's interesting here, the only other instance where the term 1,000 years is in the New Testament, we see it's not used in a literal sense. We shouldn't think of 1,000 years literally, nor should we think of the one day as literal, but it's, it's a figurative sense. And what's fascinating is um, what time period is Peter describing when he says a thousand years? It's the time between what? Christ's first and second coming. That's interesting. It's not some future age. It's the time between Christ's first and second coming. All right. Let's get back to Revelation. Um. Another thing that we can learn from Old Testament prophets is that Old Testament prophets often spoke in uh, what you can think of as cycles. Um, the prophets didn't speak in sort of a linear, a linear chronological sense where they would say, okay, this is what's going to happen, you know, and, and things are going to unfold. But oftentimes when you read the prophets, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, or, or all of them do this. They, they talk in cycles. Well, they'll, they'll speak of impending doom and judgment and destruction, and then they'll speak of the coming restoration and grace and forgiveness, right? But then they'll jump right back into the impending doom and judgment and destruction, and then the coming blessings and promises. So this cycle of weal and woe, right? Uh, it's confusing for us as modern-day readers, where we're used to reading in a chronological linear, linear sense. So you pick up a newspaper— And, you know, it tells you what happened in in a chronological sense. Prophets didn't speak that way. They spoke in cycles. They were used to that. So this this cycle of weal and woe, okay? Um, And then going back and repeating yourself in a different way. Well, when you turn to the book of Revelation and you look for that, actually, I think you do find that. Um, Scholars have found, you guessed it, seven cycles in the book of Revelation where John will describe certain events— um, and, uh, he'll describe a vision that he saw, but those events describe, um, you know, what is to take place. And then he'll jump back and restart it. And so uh, if, you were, uh, if, if you were able to read that, that short introduction about the easy way to read the book of Revelation that I sent to you from the Gospel Coalition, uh, if you, uh, um, they talked about this concept of recapitulation telling something and repeating it. And so the, the analogy would be the instant replay in football, right? You can watch a play live, and then you can watch the slow-motion replay, right? And, and then you can watch it from the blimp above the, 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 the game, right? And you're seeing the same thing from different perspectives. That is what I suggest the book of Revelation does seven times. It describes the time between Christ's first and his second coming, from different perspectives, okay? And so we shouldn't think of, you know, Revelation starting in chapter 1 and ending in 22 as in a strict chronological sense, but rather these cycles, these seven cycles. And so when John says things like, then I saw, or next, or after this, you shouldn't think of those as time indicators, chronological indicators, but rather just the next vision he saw, okay? which may or may not um, further us along in this history or chronology. perfect example of this would be Revelation chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Revelation chapter 12. I mentioned Revelation has 22 chapters, right? If you think that the book of Revelation is, um, is strictly chronological, history written in advance from chapter 1 to chapter 22, In chapter 12, where would you expect to find yourself chronologically? Sort of in the middle of history, right? Or in the middle of the story, right? Well, where do we, what, what is the vision that John sees in Revelation chapter 12? He says, And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who's that? Jesus. What is this vision describing? The birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, right? And you'll recall the order of Herod to destroy all baby boys in Bethlehem, right? Here, in a visionary sense, we're told of of historical reality, right? But where are we in the history of, of the world? We're back at the beginning, the birth of Christ, his first coming. So Revelation chapter 12, in the middle of the book, is taking us all the way back to Bethlehem. What's fascinating is if you look back in chapter 11, with the seventh trumpet, verse 15, we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, now, I'm just going to ask, I'm not, I want you to ask yourself, when will the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ? Uh, continue, uh, verse 16, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worship God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. What's missing there? Who is to come, right? Remember the Trinitarian benediction that opened up? Grace and peace be unto you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Literally, the coming one. It's, it's, a, different, it, it's, it's a different verbal construction than who is to come. It's literally the coming one. Okay? Now, why do you think John, uh, or why do you think the 24 elders, omitted the coming one? He came. He's showing up right now. Okay? Um, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign the nation's raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for you rewarding the servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. When is the time for the dead to be judged? The last day when Jesus comes, right? He will come again to judge the living and the dead, right? So what's happening here? I would suggest to you this is a description of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you see this throughout the book. Okay? You see this throughout the book. So, second coming into chapter eleven. Start chapter twelve. Where are we at? We're back at the beginning. So, if we have these cycles that describe the time between Christ first and second coming, right? Maybe I should do it this way. Um, you know, chapter eleven, second coming. Chapter twelve. We're back at square one. All right. Let's. Um, chapter twelve also is described. Oh, and and then so when we, if if we take this if we understand this to be true, that John is telling us these cycles, when we see recurring themes or words or phrases or concepts, like a dragon, right, who of course is Satan, when we see the dragon showing up, we shouldn't think necessarily as, um, oh, well, this is happening subsequent or later on. Maybe this is one of those instant replays. Maybe we're getting an instant replay um, you know, from this perspective, and an instant replay from this perspective. So, thinks about a dragon, or deception, or a bat of the battle, or uh, the concept of a short time. Those things recur over and over. Um, so, I would suggest to you, when we get to Revelation chapter 20 a premillennialist view would read the description in chapter 19, Revelation 19, uh, uh, the clearest and most definitive description of the second coming of Christ. Their assumption is, okay, since chapter 20 follows chapter 19, then those events must take place after. Hence, premillennial. The second coming is before the millennium. But I would suggest to you that Revelation 20 starts a new cycle. We were introduced... In Revelation 12, to the dragon. I read that for you. We're introduced to the dragon, who is Satan, right? In chapter 13, we're introduced to the beast. Oops, not the beast. The beast and false prophet. Okay, in chapter 17, we're introduced to Babylon, the great harlot. But as soon as Babylon is introduced in chapter 17, in chapter 18, we read of the fall of Babylon. And then, if you continue reading in chapter 19, who is destroyed? Or thrown alive into the lake of fire? There's a lot of writing. The beast and false prophet. Okay? Which leaves us, chapter 20, whose destruction should we expect following this? This is known as a chiasm because... um, from the, the Greek word key, which a letter which is uh, inverted, right? So you accept the, the first will correspond to the last, so on and so forth, right? Whose destruction should we expect here? Who's left over? The dragon. Okay? And that's exactly who we see thrown alive into the lake of fire in chapter 20. So even that should set us up. Thinking these aren't these aren't like separate events chronologically. This is the same thing, but described from a different perspective, with different enemies of God in mind being destroyed. Okay, so all that uh, before let's let's turn to Revelation twenty. I'll pause here and ask if there's any questions so far. Okay, either I've completely lost you. I'm doing a really good job describing this, right? (laughs) Okay. So we read in Revelation chapter 20, John say, then I saw. Now again, when John says things like this, then I saw, or next, or after this, um, we shouldn't think necessarily as a strict, strict chronological indicator, as if these events are to follow what I said before, but just the next vision he received. Okay? And in this vision... while. I want you to uh, hold on to that, that term, a little while. So, the nature of this binding. Uh, what is the, the nature of this binding of Satan? Um, I remember um, not only being told, but saying it myself, that if Satan is bound today, um, how on earth <laughs> is he still active? How on earth are things still so bad? Right? So that's, that's the classic argument against those who would say that Satan was bound in the first coming of Christ. Is Well, look at all the evil in this world. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible describe Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Doesn't Paul describe him as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now is at work in the sense of disobedience? How can Satan be bound if he is still active? And, uh, uh, and sometimes the retort is, well, he's bound, but he's on a really long chain. It doesn't describe a long chain here. Actually, it says that he's bound, he's in a pit, he's shut, and it's sealed over. So clearly, this binding has to be, um, it, I mean, <laughs> if, if God's going to bind Satan, it's got to be bound, he's going to be bound better than this, right? We need to understand the nature of the binding. So keep your finger here and flip back to chapter 6, verse 15. i suggested to you that, that uh, these, we're, we're already being told about things like this, if indeed uh, there are these cycles. So all the way back in the seven seals, so this is like the first cycle of, of judgments, the seals. Look there in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? What's being described here? Second coming. The second coming. Okay? Who's, who's hiding themselves? Notice that list of people kings, the generals, the rich, the powerful. Right? The, the, these are the, uh, uh, the people of this world who are opposed to God. Okay? And again, remember, uh, when you see these themes recurring, or these names and titles recurring, we need to understand that perhaps uh, th- this is just another retelling of the story. So flip to chapter 12, verse 9. Uh, Sorry, uh, jump back to verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael, uh, and and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then uh, jump ahead to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman uh, who had given birth to the male child. Um, And then, let's see here. um, Yeah, I'll just just keep reading. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of its mouth, after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who, commi- who, keep, uh, um, who keep the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I, oh, pfft, here it is. Verse 12, sorry, this is what I meant to read. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Recurring themes. Short time, chapter 20, a little while. Okay, So I would suggest to you that what we read of, described in chapter 12, of Satan being defeated by Michael and the angels and cast down to earth is the same thing as him being bound in chapter 20 and his short time describes uh, corresponds to the little while what is the little while what is the short time well it's where he is unleashed as it were and and able to you know do his damage do his worst but it it's a short time it's a short time okay so um Skip to chapter 16. This is the, the Battle of Armageddon. Okay, Verse uh, 12. The sixth angel pour, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, remember that group of people that in chapter 6 were saying, fall on us. Uh, who can stand? The wrath of Lamb, what was the first group of people listed in that? The kings, okay? So here we have the kings again, this uh, army uh, opposed to God. Um, Prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God almighty what's happening here satan together with the beast and false prophet are deceiving the kings to do what assemble for battle against god they're assembling through what deception okay through deception to gather uh, the kings of the east to uh, to battle against God. Of course, it's uh, uh, the battle's not going <laughs> to it's not going to be much of a battle, right? It's God who's going to destroy them. Now we get this. Uh, we 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 find the purpose of the binding in chapter twenty, uh, beginning in verse seven. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to do what. To deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, for what? To gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. Um, The purpose of the binding of Satan is is not to limit all of his activity. Clearly, that's not the case. Clearly, Satan is still active. Uh, Of course, he's only able to do what God allows him to do. The devil is God's devil, right? Uh, But... Uh, the, the, purpose of the, the, the purpose of the binding is very narrowly defined in Revelation chapter 20. It's to prevent him from deceiving the nations to gather them to gather, to, uh, to gather for battle for final day judgment. Okay? Um, so that's, you know, when people say, well, how can Satan be bound and stuff still happens today? Well, that's not the purpose of the binding. The purpose of the binding is to prevent, to prevent him from doing a very specific thing. Hastening the end of the world. I, I think of Satan as somebody who, you know, when you're like, you're playing with your friends around the pool, and they're trying to push you in the pool, and you know you're going in, so what do you do? You grab him and you bring them in with you, right? Satan's like that. He knows he's, he knows he's defeated. He knows he's going down. What, what does he want to do? Well, he wants to drag as many people with his tail in with him and hasten the end, Okay? but he's prevented from doing that. So that, I suggest to you, is the nature of the binding. What about the nature of the rain? Uh, we read in, uh, in, in a separate vision, so, so framing, um, uh, framing the, 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 the description of Satan, the dragon, being bound and then unbound, frames this other vision that John sees in verse 4, where he says, I saw thrones and seated on them, were those to whom the authority to judge were committed. Well, who's this? Going Back to chapter 3, Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Where is the throne that Jesus is describing? Is it on earth? No, it's in heaven. Right? It's in heaven. Jesus is promising to the conqueror, the one who overcomes, heavenly reign. Okay? And this is confirmed when we find the identity of those who are reigning as the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. We've already been introduced to these souls back in chapter 6, where we read in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God And for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What are the souls of those who have been slain? What are they crying out for? Vengeance, specifically second day judgment, second day coming, or final day judgment, right? Second coming, final day judgment. Then Notice what John says. Then they were each given a white robe, and told to rest a little longer. See that phrase? A little while, a short time, a little longer, until what? The number of their fellow servants and the brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What's happening during this little while? Satan is working. He's persecuting the church. His time is short. He could be released for a little while, right? They, had, they were told to wait a little while what's being described here. It's the time between Christ and first and second coming, but that time is, is characterized as a little while, a short time. Jesus says to one of the churches, you will have persecution for 10 days. Does it literally mean 10 days? Or is that symbolic for a relatively short amount of time? I would suggest to you that's what it is. It's a relatively short amount of time. Um, so what we read of in chapter 6, where they're crying out for for vengeance, and told to wait a little while, I think we're told, in chapter 20, another perspective. What are they actually doing? Rather than just waiting, what are they doing? Reigning. They're reigning with Christ, just as he promised in chapter 3. Okay, first resurrection. So, uh, we're told uh, that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now notice, here's the thousand years thing. Don't take it literally. A thousand years obviously describes a long time, right? I mean, that's even how we use it today, right? It's a long time, as opposed to what? A little while. So from the perspective of persecution, it's a relatively short amount of time. From the perspective of ruling and reigning with Christ, what is it? A long time. It's the same time. It's just a different perspective. Short versus long. Um. So we are told uh, that um, they came to life and uh, reign uh, with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. All right. So when we think of when, when we read of first resurrection, it automatically implies what. A second resurrection, right? I mean, if there's a first, there has to be a second, right? Otherwise, it's just a resurrection. Um, and so we're told this is the first resurrection. And so premillenius would read this and say, well, this is the first in a in a in a sequence of resurrections, right? There's a first one, and there's a second one, and then some depending on how complicated your scheme is, there's a third, there's a fourth. That's not John's point, okay? That's not his point. Um, and and so what's interesting is he says. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So we have first resurrection and second death. What's fascinating is John doesn't mention a second resurrection, nor does he mention a first death. Right? So there's a lot going on here, but I would suggest to you, and I have, for those who are interested, I only have one copy, but if you want more copies, I have a very fascinating article that describes this, if you'd like to get it. Um, I would suggest to you that John uses this term, first resurrection, in an ironic sense. Irony is, is another um, uh, thing that we find in the book of Revelation. So when John is told of the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is overcome. Right? And he turns and he looks. What does he see? A lamb as if it had been slain. Irony. Okay? Here, I think he's using uh, first resurrection in an ironic sense to describe the physical death of the believer, and not just ordinary death, but martyrdom. Remember, it's the souls of those who have been beheaded. So first resurrection describes martyrdom, and yet John will not call it death. What will he call it? Coming to life and reigning with Christ. Martyrdom is overcoming. What the world perceives as defeat is actually victory. Okay? Now, second death. Who does John describe as those who have this, who have the first resurrection, second death has no power over them, right? Um, I would I would suggest to you that John used the second death in an ironic sense to describe, not death, physical death, but the physical resurrection of the unjust for the purpose of judgment. We know Jesus told us that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust for the purpose of judgment. And yet John will not call it a resurrection. He calls it the second death. Why? Because they've already physically died. So, so this... Uh, this first, um, you know, you can think of first death as physical death, right? Second death for the unbeliever is resurrection for the purpose of being judged. Okay? So, there's a lot to the argument. If you want to read more, it's there. I think I got it all. and only two minutes over. Okay. Any, I dare not say, any questions or comments? <laughs> yes. Sean. We are currently in the little while from the perspective of persecution and suffering and faithful witness. Uh, and that's the time that in, in chapter twenty, verse three, that Satan uh, has been released for a little while. That's our current time. Yeah. So, so Revelation twenty, um, it's using this little while in the sense where he is able to. Um, you know, do his worst and hasten final day judgment, right? But we've already seen this this concept, short time, little while, as the time for faithful witness and persecution. But it's it's, it's being described as a sh- relatively short amount of time. So you have the woman is, is to be fed for 1,260 days. Or it's described as a time, time, and half a time, three and a half years, right? Um, that's a relatively short amount of time. Right, it's a relatively short amount of time, um, but I would suggest that same time period from the perspective of ruling and reigning with Christ is described as a thousand years—a long time. From a different perspective, or is it, or is it past already? Yeah. So um, that's a good good question. So I would suggest to you that. That yes, in, in that sense, I would say Satan is currently bound in that he's not able to hasten final day judgment Armageddon, right? Um, but he will be un, unbound in that sense. So from for and so all of these it's they're they're roughly overlapping, right? There's there's different things that are being taught with similar concepts, right? Um, but. Uh, so, yeah, in that sense, I would say that Revelation 20 teaches that Satan is bound right now. Yes. Um, but that same, that it, it's uh, the thousand years is the same as you know previously the short time. Joe? Right now, he to be in the future. Well, yes, in the sense that, yeah, he will, there will be, Jesus will come again. Right. Um, but yes. Um, so but I, I, I'm not I'm not convinced that Revelation 20 requires us to affirm that they that there will be a uh, that things will get like remarkably worse or that there will be this like major apostasy or like major you know, event immediately preceding the second coming of Christ. Um, I, I, it's, it's being told that the, the vision is, is describing something um, that, you know, it, it's, it's described, it's, it's describing it in the sense of, you know, Satan gathering a battle, right? Gathering these kings from the East to battle against God. I don't, I'm, I'm not suggesting that's literally going to take place. Um, not, not really answering your question careful or well, let me, let me think about how I could, Formulate that a bit better. David. you and I do I was here the last two weeks, we could probably spend a month here with all the details and I think lots of people might have a lot of technical I think we can spend a thousand years. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you for that. For getting me back on track, um, I affirmed uh, last last week four things that I think any good eschatological view should affirm in times' views. Number one, the goodness of creation that God that God is not going to just completely annihilate this world, and that our heavenly existence will be ethereal floating on clouds, playing harps. No, we're going to be, there's a new heavens and new earth, so the goodness of creation. Um, The two-age scheme that Paul talks about, this present evil age and the age which is to come, and not trying to impose a third scheme or a third uh, age, uh, like the Montanists did with the age of the spirit, for example. Um, The ordinary means of grace, as the way in which Christ is building his church, And the reality of suffering and persecution and the need for faithful witness in this earth. And so what I was, for for the interpretation of Revelation 20, um, the one that I'm suggesting to you, and of course it's not the only one, and we're at liberty to, you know, interpret this differently, is I feel like all of those things are being affirmed in in my understanding of this. And most importantly, that this idea of suffering and persecution and faithful witness, um, because If you understand martyrdom to be first resurrection, that's that. Christine, last one. Um, So that would, uh, uh, yeah, there's been all sorts of suggestions about the nature of the binding of Satan. Um, Yeah, so preventing the gospel from going out. Um, and, now, and now he is, uh, or now the gospel is going out, so he's bound. Um, I, I would say, well, yeah, that's true. But is that, is that John's point in Revelation 20? I think he, he very narrowly defines it so that the, he can deceive the nations, right? So um, we need to, you know, there, there's a lot of, like, true doctrine that are imposed. It's right doctrine, wrong text, right? Um, chapter 12, he's kicked out of heaven, the purpose of he can no longer accuse the brethren so he loses his standing in god's court he's kicked out so that's another so it's another true thing um but it's uh, it you need to look at the text specifically and ask what what is it being described what's being described here okay we are out of time if you have more questions feel free to come up but we gotta we gotta break uh, for the kids Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you um, are ruling and reigning over all and that you will come again to judge the living and the dead, that you will glorify us together with yourself. We thank you uh, for your promise uh, that we, to the one who overcomes, that he will sit with you on your throne together with your Father. We pray that you would continue to watch over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head. We pray that you would bless us this week as we go about our daily lives. We ask all this in your name. Amen.